Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And she's back, but not really, because this is a (laughs) pre-recorded episode. Annie, hopefully, as we are airing this, you're sitting at home, cuddling your newbie, this little baby that I've been so excited for, I'm sure just a fraction of how excited I bet you are to have this baby out of you, because you must be pretty uncomfortable by this point. I am. I am ready, 100%, ready for this little new member of our family to join us. And yeah, hopefully whenever this airs, I'm sitting on a couch eating some like Doritos or something and holding her because I can't do this much longer, Elise. First glass of wine after nine, ten months or however long. That will be so nice as well. Wine and Doritos, a delicacy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Annie is, like she said, a little uncomfortable, maybe a little out of breath, but I'm excited to go over this case. So I'm going to let you dive in before you completely run out of oxygen. (laughs) So the case I am talking about today might be top three most bizarre cases I have ever heard of. And I am confident that after I talk about it today, our listeners are going to feel the same. This isn't a murder per se, but rather a disappearance. This is the strange case of Mary Louise Day. Mary was born in Little Falls, New York on February 19, 1968 to Charlotte and Charles Day. She was truly the cutest kid. I found this picture of her. She has these blunt little bangs, this little plaid dress on, and this mischievous kind of grin that's going to follow her throughout her life. She kind of resembles a little Millie Bobby Brown, like truly the cutest thing. She had two younger sisters, Kathy and Sherry, and the sisters were really close, but they did not have easy childhoods. They were constantly in and out of foster care in the early years because their mother was often unable to care for them. Their mother's life was a little bit chaotic, and after doing my research, she was a mother who never put her kids first, and it really showed with her oldest, Mary. At some point while the girls were in foster care, Charlotte divorced their dad, Charles, and remarried a man named William. William was enlisted in the U.S. Army. Because he was in the Army, the family was moved to Hawaii, and one of the sisters, Sherry, ended up getting adopted by her foster family back in the States. So Mary and Kathy went back to live with their mother and new stepdad who had attained full custody of the girls at this point. While in Hawaii, the girl's biological father, Charles, was killed in a horrible accident, which, of course, left the girls heartbroken. But due to his death, Mary and Kathy learned that he left a nice chunk of change for them that they would be able to access when they turned 18. Even though they were young and money wasn't necessarily an issue or concern, It did give them something to look forward to to help them get out of their tough situation. Mary and Kathy referred to the inheritance money and their plan to get away from their family as, quote, Mohawk, end quote, which is going to be really important down the road. That's a choice. It's a choice. And they're like little kids. And I just feel like that's kind of a that's kind of an interesting word to choose. Yeah, it's like their little code name. But you think it would be like Bluebird. Not even something like our way out would be the name of it, because (laughs) these kids have been through trauma after trauma with being in and out of their mom's home. Then their father, unfortunately, passing away like these kids have seen a lot in their young age. And it's going to get worse. In December of 1980, when Mary was 12, she was taken back into protective custody after it was discovered that William, her stepdad, was physically abusing her. The rest of the family packed up and moved stateside to Seaside, California, following a change in William's base. 
but Mary was actually kept in Hawaii for a few more months in foster home until she was sent back to live with the family in California. So this poor kid is literally an ocean away from everything she knows and loves, and she is 12 years old. Well, and this is ridiculous. This, I mean, this stuff still happens with child services now. But they take her out of the home for what is probably a very good reason, like she is being assaulted by her stepdad. She comes forward or someone tells that she's taken out of the home, has to adjust to this foster home life just to be sent back to her abuser. Yeah, it's horrible. And while Mary was in Seaside, California with the rest of the family, she was a known runaway. She frequently attempted to run away from her home, but she would always be returned back by police officers. Who can blame her? Right. During this time, she was young enough to know that she deserved better and to know how horrible of a situation she was, but she was not anywhere near old enough to be on her own. The following year, trouble struck the day household. Mary was at home with her sister while the rest of the family was away. The dog suddenly became super sick and it actually ended up dying while those two young girls were home alone. William, the stepdad, who particularly had it out for Mary, came home and immediately blamed her of poisoning the dog and killing him. As you can imagine, all hell broke loose. Sister Kathy remembers this night really well. She said that William grabbed her sister by the hair, yelled at the kids to leave the room, and then William started to beat Mary. There was blood and screaming and just an awful scene and a horrible memory for Kathy because this would be the last time that she ever saw her sister. Oh my gosh. Even though Sherry was adopted and living with a different family, she would often go back to visit her biological family, and she immediately noticed that her older sister wasn't there. She would often ask her other sister, where is Mary? Where, you know, what's going on? And Kathy would hush her and say, we can we cannot talk about Mary anymore, which is very ominous. And how old was this little girl at the time? Mary was 12, and the other two girls were younger than her, so like 10 and, 10 and 9. And so kids are very heavily influenced. Because obviously she cares about her big sister. We don't talk about her anymore is not something that's going to come to a little kid's mind, right? That's the influence of someone directing her, that we don't talk about her, don't bring up her name. Yeah. The other odd thing was that both of the sisters recalled from their childhood that there was a spot in their backyard that the kids were forbidden to go around or mess with. The excuse that the parents gave was that after that fight, Mary ran away and that was that. What's suspicious is that a missing persons report was never filed and no one, not even the neighbors or the relatives, ever found out what happened to little Mary. And as the months passed, people kind of forgot that she ever existed. Years pass and younger sister Sherry is now an adult. She started to really question her mom and stepdad and the excuses they gave when she pressed them about Mary all those years ago. She wanted answers in her sister's disappearance, and she actually ended up going to law enforcement and talking to investigators. A missing persons report was finally officially filed in 1994, 13 years after Mary disappeared. One thing that really stood out to me during the interviews was that Sherry told investigators that when she was only 10 years old, and shortly after Mary disappeared, her mother, Charlotte, would often talk about how hiding bodies in California was easy. She specifically said, there are so many places in California you could bury a body and it would never be found. These poor kids, every core memory of theirs is traumatic. And having your mom say that and knowing that your sister is missing, like that context would absolutely stick with you of, wait, is she talking about that she's done this? 
Or is she just like us, a person that absorbs a lot of true crime information? But when your sister is missing and your mom's the one telling you that, it would be hard not to. You put two and two together. Absolutely. It took a long time after Sherry came forward, but nine years later, in 2003, a homicide investigation was opened up. So we went from having a missing persons case to years going by and finally a homicide investigation. That same year, Seaside Police Detective Joe Bertana took one of the sisters back to the family home in Seaside, and she showed him that area I talked about earlier, that place in the backyard where her parents did not let any of the kids go. That police officer brought cadaver dogs into the backyard, and there was a total of four dogs who all independently hit on one particular spot the exact location the kids were not allowed to go around. Absolutely not. Put them all in handcuffs, throw away the key. More investigators were brought in, and they started to dig. And I know they were all kind of holding their breath, expecting to find a body. They didn't find a body, but they did find a little girl's shoe. Based upon how all four of the dogs had acted, their handlers were positive that at one point there had been a body there. So because of how the dogs reacted, because of that memory of don't go in the backyard, Charlotte and William became the main suspects in the possible homicide of Mary. At this point in time, Charlotte and William were found living in Kansas, and they were still together. Charlotte agreed to come down to a police station and talk about her daughter. I think these two were starting to really feel the heat because even though they said Mary ran away, they had been cashing in on government money that Mary was given after her dad died. I want to be clear. This was not the inheritance money that they were promised. This was just kind of like a social security check that the kids were getting and Charlotte and William were cashing in on, which is fraud. This interview with Charlotte is so weird. I watch it a few times and it's kind of all over the place. She starts off by saying, sometimes you do things in your past and it comes back to haunt you and you regret it. Later in the interview, she says, oh, what a mess. It was like trying to get a nightcrawler out of a wormhole and just grabbing it and it was gone, grabbing it and it was gone. I mean, how many times did Mary run away? You know, all of these questions I just can't answer. So she's kind of planting this seed of like, I get that it was weird. I know that it was wrong. But she is sticking by her 20-year-old story that Mary ran away completely on her own. Keep in mind, Mary was 12, 13 years old at this time. Well, and let's also keep in mind that she didn't file a missing persons report. Whether this daughter ran away or not, at the very least, the police should have been alerted and started to look into it. Because as you said, a 12 or 13 year old is not aware, hopefully, I mean, this poor Mary was aware of a lot more than she should have been of the dangers around her because the danger was in her own household all of the time. But they're not capable of getting a job at that age of taking care of themselves. So at the very least, if you were a somewhat concerned parent, why wasn't there a missing persons report filed, even if she did run away? And Annie, I have to ask you this, but something else that's sticking out to me is why, why didn't any like teachers notify Mary for being truant? Did that come up in your research at all? It never did. I kind of think because of William's job, being enlisted in the Army, and the family constantly moving around, they were living on base, and kids would up and kind of up and leave without a moment's notice. It's odd that the two sisters were still going to school, but it never came up in my research that anyone really even cared to ask about Mary, which makes it even more sad in my opinion. Well, and thank goodness that we have mandatory reporting laws now. Yeah. 
Charlotte is asked about this big fight that happened over the dog, right? That kind of seemed like the catalyst of this big event, whether Mary was murdered or whether she ran away. She's really vague about the details. She kind of says, I don't really remember it. And I get that it was 20 years ago, but that was such a huge event. I mean, there's fighting, screaming, there's blood. You know, your husband, Mary's stepfather, is like physically abusing her. There is no way that you would ever forget about that. Well, and also your pet dog that supposedly you love died. That would stick out to you. Even if you didn't care right. about the, your human child, you would think that an event like your dog going from healthy to being suspected of being poisoned would be something that would stand out to you. Absolutely. But she kind of played it off. And, you know, she's a very vague woman. I'll be honest. She does not like details. She doesn't really want to give a story straight. She kind of tiptoes around everything. Just an odd character. But after Charlotte's interview, they bring in William, the stepdad. And this is where things just get really weird. The story of the sick dog is brought up to William because I don't know if I mentioned it before, but that dog actually belonged to William. And he was convinced two decades later that Mary poisoned the dog still. He got super fired up during the interview. Cops were kind of playing good cop, bad cop. Ugh, that'd be so horrible to come home to your dead dog that you loved. And you think Mary did it, right? And he said, absolutely. He said that when he found out that dog was dead, he kind of made this motion. And it looks like a little like duck beak, but you turn it on your side, like a jabbing motion. He had basically admitted to like hitting her in the throat with that hand. That's how mad he was. He said that on a scale of one to 10, he was at 15. So one detective says, if you were that angry, like, do you think you could have killed her? He responded with, I'm not sure, but that night, Charlotte, who's Mary's mom, said that she saw Satan in my eyes and that I was possessed by a demon. The detective then kind of flips the script and says, OK, OK, do you think maybe that demon could have killed Mary? To which William says, yes, that demon absolutely could have killed her. OK, to me, this man is not only admitting it, but creating a very good. I had a, you know, it was a crime of passion, a moment of you know, insanity, temporary insanity. I wasn't present by blaming it on this demon that overtook him. Like, I love my dog. If someone kills Gracie, oh yeah, I'll probably have a demon inside me too. For Absolutely. But it doesn't sound like there's any reason to suspect this 12-year-old girl who has no prior history of being the abuser of anything, of why she would want to kill this dog that probably was the only source of comfort in that home. And he is a grown man admitting that he, like, choked this little girl out and that maybe if he didn't do it, this demon did it. It just is so bizarre. The interview was super odd. I do credit the cops for kind of doing that good cop, bad cop and saying, like, oh, I'd be so mad, too. And he's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, it wasn't me. It was the demon. It's like that meme. It wasn't me. It was Patricia. Like, no, William, it was definitely you. I can't imagine trying to, I mean, credit to these investigators that do this work because I cannot imagine sitting there listening to someone tell me the story and having to pretend to empathize with them. I couldn't do it. I'd be like, no, you're a piece of shit. You're a grown man that is admitting to me that you hurt a little girl to some extent, potentially even killed her. It's awful. After these interviews were conducted, investigators didn't think they had enough to file formal charges against William and Charlotte, even though they wanted to. They had suspicion. They had the cadaver dogs hitting on a spot in the backyard where the Day family used to live. But they didn't have a body and they didn't have the luxury of time. I mean, at this point, Mary had been gone for over two decades. Detectives were trying to build a case against Charlotte and William. And while they were doing this, they were not able to find any kind of social security card or credit card or bank account 
that was linking them back to Mary, showing that she was still alive. So she basically had disappeared off the face of the earth. What this shows is it kind of just confirms to them that after that incident happened, whenever Mary was 12, she ceased to exist. Seven months into this investigation, the police chief get a really interesting call from law enforcement in Phoenix, Arizona. Law enforcement in Arizona had pulled over a pickup truck that had stolen plates, and they had run the IDs of the two passengers in the car. One of those IDs was Mary Breakin Day. They were able to confirm her identity because she had a state-issued Arizona driver's license that, get this, had been issued three weeks prior to her getting pulled over. Here's the thing. If it's three weeks, my head immediately goes to there's some like bad news bears out there that watch these type of things or look at obituaries and will steal the identities of people that have passed or take on their identities to get rid of their prior mistakes. This is what makes this case so bizarre. As soon as the investigators from California heard the news, they booked the first flight out of there and they went to Arizona to meet up with this mysterious Mary Day who had reappeared after being gone for all these years. They meet with the woman and she has that super cute kind of unique little smirk. Elise, I sent you kind of what Mary looked like as a 12-year-old and then the woman that they're talking to at this point in time. What do you think about their resemblance? Their bone structure is very, very similar. And what sticks out to me the most is their nostrils. And Mm -hmm. that sounds a little bit odd, but her right nostril is significantly higher than her other nostril. And it kind of like her nose comes to this very, very obvious tip. Like she has a little button nose. It's unique for sure. And yet the lady has the same thing. The nostril that's pictured on the left side, which would be her right nostril, is much higher than the other. And that's not something that I think you would see all that commonly. You see every day. The eyebrows right. are the same. I think they look identical. Mm-hmm. The only difference is that the Mary Day child picture, which you guys, it's going to crush you to see this little girl because she is so sweet. But her eyes look a little bit downturned. And I cannot tell if it's because of this adult woman's makeup. Um, She's kind of wearing a smoky eye, which could definitely create an illusion of a lift. But the bone structure is so similar. And where her earlobes sit, I mean, I'm really getting into this. Even the earlobes match perfectly to where they fall against the cheek. It is so odd how much they look alike. We'll post pictures on our Instagram because... I'm curious what everyone else thinks, but... I mean, that's her. It truly is like copy-paste, yes. Mary agrees to talk to the investigators after getting pulled over, and she kind of gives her version of what her life had been like. She confirms that, yes, she was a runaway. She ran away after a bad incident. She lived under the radar and by her wits, and she kind of bounced around from place to place. But she did seem a little bit hesitant about talking about her childhood And investigators couldn't quite put a finger on it, but something just seemed off. And I have to agree with investigators, when you are doing a seven-month-long investigation into this woman, you can't find any social security card, any bank account, nothing, confirming that Mary Day is still alive. And then, boom, she happens to appear at a random traffic stop. Like, it's odd. So I get why their guard was up. Mary continues to talk to detectives, and she talks about her last night at that home in California when she was just 12 years old. She starts to kind of recount her series of events, but you can tell she's really confused about what happened. She remembers her stepdad hitting her head on the tub and on the coffee table after this big fight, but she never mentions anything about the dog. 
which to me is kind of a red flag because that's what started the whole fight. Well, let's remember we've already done some episodes with survivors of trauma. That one boy, I can't think of his name right now, who completely stopped remembering that he had seen the murder and witnessed the murder of his mom because your brain protects you from trauma. So it could be something like that where her brain just disassociated from that experience. Very true. And we'll get into disassociation in just a second because that is a good point. So the real question law enforcement have at this point, is this woman really Mary Louise Day, who supposedly disappeared two decades ago? Because of the uncertainty, they actually refer to this woman as Phoenix Mary. I'm going to refer to her as Phoenix Mary throughout this episode, so just want to make sure we're all aware this is the woman they found in Arizona. Phoenix Mary was really confused on why law enforcement was questioning her identity and why they were so interested in her backstory and why that traffic stop had prompted like this full investigation into her life. In hindsight, we know that law enforcement had spent seven months trying to end this homicide on Charlotte and William just to find out that this woman had an ID that was Mary Day. So I can kind of see both sides of it. Mary then actually offers up her DNA. She's like, here, take my DNA. It'll prove that I am who I say I am. And then I can just get on with my life. Investigators get some DNA from Charlotte, the mom, and it matches. The DNA was positive. This woman was a daughter of Charlotte. Case closed. This is where it gets weird again. Take another turn to the left. After the DNA match, Sherry, the sister from the very beginning, was more convinced that this was her older sister. So she invites Mary to move in with her. She wanted to kind of rekindle that sisterhood and that friendship and just kind of give Mary a fresh start, right? She has finally reconnected with her long lost sister. But no, things are about to get even weirder. Once Phoenix Mary moved in, Sherry starts to have these doubts that this was the Mary from her childhood. For starters, Phoenix Mary has a Midwestern Southern accent. There's a man named Mark Clark who was a retired homicide detective, and he actually brought forth four separate Southern dialect experts, and they listened to the interview between law enforcement and Phoenix Mary. All four of those dialect experts said that that woman would have had to live most of her formative years, zero to nine or 10, in the South to acquire that Southern accent. I listened to some of the recordings, and her voice is very slow. It's very drawn out. She says y'all a lot. When we think of the timeline, Mary grew up in California. She lived a little bit of her early childhood in Hawaii, but not in areas where that Southern twang is really heard. So for these dialect experts to kind of say, she would have had to live like all of her childhood in the South was something that I took note of. But also, aren't there people that just naturally have an ear for language and kind of absorb it? Maybe. And she was a wanderer. I mean, she openly admitted that like after she left her house at 12 or 13, she bopped around from place to place. I just don't know how much of an accent you would pick up on unless it was kind of one of those you were trying to fit in somewhere, which sure. could be the case with her. Maybe she wanted to seem a little bit older and more independent on her own. So she kind of adapted to whatever environment she was living in. But also, I'm thinking I've lost most of it since. But when I lived in North Dakota, I very quickly picked up on the words and phrases and the oohs. And, <laughs> and I'll be honest, if I have a cocktail or two, they come back out. My oohs get significantly <laughs> longer the more wine I drink. So I and I was what? 18, 18 at the time, I don't have an ear for language. I cannot speak any other languages. And unfortunately, I have a hard time picking that up. But 
those little changes in your voice, I think, can definitely happen. That's a good point. I mean, I grew up in southern Indiana, and I definitely had a twang. Like, I remember going to IU, and people were like, you kind of sound like a hillbilly. And I lost all of that. So it still I comes out when you say werewolf. Or when I drink wine, at least. I'm like, how y'all doing? So <laughs> that's a good point. The other odd thing that Sherry finds while living with Phoenix Mary is a magazine in her room that was addressed not to Mary Louise Day, but to a woman named Monica Duvreau. Phoenix Mary hasn't answered that very quickly. She claims that when she was living kind of on her own, she created this alias. And that person's name was Monica DeVroe. Maybe she didn't want to be tracked by her family. Maybe she wanted to kind of start fresh. I mean, think about it, like as a teenager or a young 20-year-old, maybe you want a new identity. So that kind of accounts for the mismatched name. But it stood out to Sherry. Well, not only that, but this girl has been shown as a child numerous times that she is always going to be returned to her abusers. She was taken out by child services and returned multiple times. So it would make sense that you'd be like, okay, I got to get rid of this name. I got to go buy something else so these people can't find me and return me to these horrible people that don't care about me. Yeah, that's also so true. Like, I feel like we're cracking the case as we're going through it. I love whenever we do that. But what I couldn't wrap my head around was, okay, let's say that this woman is an imposter, which is what law enforcement and kind of Sherry are feeling like she is. What would be the number one motive? For this woman to come in and say, hey, I'm Mary Louise Day. Money. Money. That's exactly where my head went to. And earlier I talked about this code word Mohawk, right? Whenever the biological father of the girls died, he left an inheritance that Mary was supposed to get whenever she was 18. So that's kind of where my head went. But what's weird is whenever Kathy and Sherry brought up the word Mohawk, Phoenix Mary had no idea what they were talking about. Yes, it could go back to the fact that she had push that memory in the back of her mind. But also, like, that was their golden ticket out of their shitty situation was Mohawk, Mohawk. They talked about it all the time. And the sisters were so thrown off that Phoenix Mary did not remember that word or the fact that she had, like, $60,000 waiting for her in the bank. Did she ever collect on it? She did. Sherry was a really good big sister, and she's like, okay, well, you have rights to this money. Because she had an ID card saying that she was Mary Day, she was able to gain access to that. Oh, I have a theory. Okay, go ahead. Okay. The weirdness doesn't really stop here, even though I've thrown a lot of curveballs to our listeners. After a few months of living with Sherry and gaining access to that money, Mary wrote a note to one of the lead detectives. And she had a lot of ramblings in this email. She kind of goes back and forth. But she finishes the note with, quote, I've been lying to you about who I am, end quote. Like, what? She she has fooled everyone at this point. She's gotten the money. She has her sisters back in her lives. And then she goes on this rambling tangent and finishes with that. Can you imagine being a detective and being like, what is this woman doing? Well, but here's the thing. You can't lie about DNA. We're about to get into the DNA. Okay. Hold your horses on that one. I have a theory. Okay, go ahead. So years later, this is another odd twist of this case that feels like it should be a movie, but it's actually truly did happen. Years later in 2008, Steve Sarcombe, who was the Seaside Police Chief, got a call from investigators at the Army base in Fort Ord, California, where the Day family lived when William got relocated due to his job. Another set of cadaver dogs were working on a completely unrelated matter. They were going to hundreds of homes on this Army base. They were doing some sniffing. I'm not sure what they were looking for. To be honest, this case is confusing as it is. I don't want to keep adding other things. But all of the dogs positively hit on one of these hundreds of homes. 
diggers were called in. They started digging. They went to the location. They brought in all the backhoes and all that kind of stuff. There was no body found. But while they're doing the digging, they're trying to figure out who lived here and why these cadaver dogs hit. Can you guess what family lived there at one point? The Days. The Day family. So that opens up this whole other part of the investigation of the first family home cadaver dogs hit on. At this other base in California, cadaver dogs happened to hit on this area that the Day family lived. Like, what is going on? The Day family had moved to this house shortly after Mary disappeared. The lead investigator, who was convinced that Phoenix Mary was an imposter, has this idea. He thinks that Mary was murdered by William on that night and that her body had been buried at the first house. They think whenever the Day family moved, William dug up her body and then moved it with them to the next home. Research facility Body Farmed, um, it's an organization that looks into body decomposition. We have to cover Tested. this. I, okay. I'm so fascinated by the Body Farm. I had never heard of them. Oh, I heard about first with like, I think it was a Patricia Cornwell book called The Body Farm. But yeah, there's multiple ones around the U.S. and it's wild. And they truly just test the soil and no, kind of figure out. it's not just the soil. I, I'll do an episode on it, but I'll just say this. They get bodies that are donated to science and specifically to the body farm. And they put them in all different environments. Like if a body was left in the sun, this is how we know like what bugs and things like that come first. But they also will like leave it in a car. They'll put it in water and submerge it so that they can figure out time of deaths. And, and I mean, it, the research has helped numerous cases, but it is wild. It sounds a little spooky, ooky, wormy, maggoty. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. Yeah, we definitely need to cover that then. That would be interesting. But because there was no body, they were able to look at the soil. And they said that, yeah, this is consistent with at one point having a body be buried here. So this is just another piece of the puzzle because we have these two locations that cadaver dogs hit on with no body. So Elise, you talked a little bit a second ago about DNA. And that's what I really want to get into here because this is the one thing that connects Phoenix Mary to the Day family, her DNA. Wait, can I tell you my theory first? Yes, absolutely. Because I'm busting. So this mom was not a mom as we know a mom to be, right? She gave zero craps about her children. They were taken away from her. She spent time away from her kids numerous times. Could she have gotten pregnant during one of these times where the, none of the other kids knew about it because they were in foster care? Bingo. You nailed the, the nail on the hammer with this one or whatever that saying is. <laughs> what is that saying? Hit the nail on the hammer or hit the hammer on the nail? Hit the nail on the head. You hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Pregnancy brain. <laughs> Full of force tonight. But one investigator has this idea exactly the same that you had, Elise, where Charlotte had another daughter, a secret daughter, if you will, born a year prior to Mary. And the idea was that this daughter had been given up at birth. This investigator looked into Charlotte's background and found out that she had a few marriages where she'd been involved in some affairs. She could have easily gotten pregnant. This investigator even goes on to say that he thinks Charlotte and William actually sought out the daughter and said, hey, we want to avoid prosecution. Can you please pretend to be Mary Day? We'll give you money. We'll give you whatever. Like you'll get the $60,000. That they kind of think that they were in cahoots together because Charlotte and William wanted to avoid prosecution after cashing in on those social security checks from the biological father of Mary Day for all those years. Because once again, that's complete fraud. And not only that, but a potential homicide. Exactly. 
I have thrown a lot of scenarios and theories around, and I'm sure everyone's head was kind of spinning the same way that mine was when I stumbled upon this case, but I'm going to close out with a theory that kind of wraps up everything, and it might give everyone a little bit of closure. I will entertain all thoughts when it comes to this case. I'm looking forward to the comments on Instagram or our DMs, but this theory came about when a fresh set of eyes took a look at the case, and this is kind of what I'm going to put my eggs in the basket on. In 2017, when Phoenix Mary was suffering from a late-stage cancer, the acting police chief of Seaside named Judy Velez dug into the layers of the investigation. I think to Judy, she was kind of going through some old files, found this case, and she just thought, I'm going to give it one more look because the thought of this little girl being murdered and forgotten was just too much to take, and she had someone that she could talk to who was claiming to be Mary Louise Day. Mary and Judy met up, and Mary recalled something from her past that would prove she was who she said she was. This person was named Marie Kimmel. Marie had taken Mary into her home about a year or two after she ran away, and Mary became really close friends with Marie's two young daughters. Judy traveled to meet up with this mystery Marie person, and Marie talks about her time with Mary. She even brings out a photo from the early 80s, and in that photo was this 15-year-old girl who looks so similar to Mary Louise Day. It's uncanny. Once again, we'll put pictures up, but they have a very similar, but once again, Mary has this very distinctive look. That photo was sent off to a state-of-the-art facial recognition company, and they took that photo, they did a bunch of testing on it, and they said there's a 99% chance the teenager in that photo is Mary Louise Day. They looked at her as a 12-year-old. They looked at her as an adult, and they said, yes, this is exactly what she would look like as a teenager. As Judy got to know Mary a little bit more, she learned that Phoenix Mary was an alcoholic and that she had been one since she was a teenager. As we know, heavy alcohol use can cause memory loss, and when you tie that to all of the trauma that Phoenix Mary had since she was a kid, it's becoming very plausible that, yeah, this woman could very well be who she said she is. She just had a really hard life, and that caused some memory loss. As Judy continued to talk with Mary, she learned a few other pieces that I think are going to kind of tie a little bow on the case. First, we talked about how there was that weird incident with the Arizona license and how it appeared like three weeks prior to her getting pulled over. That was because Mary needed state aid to pay for a gallbladder removal surgery. So even though that was suspicious around the timing of the the case being reopened, maybe she heard about it, took on this identity, whatever. But they're saying, no, she just couldn't live like this transient lifestyle because she was up against a timeline and needed to get this surgery. Exactly. So that kind of checked out, even though it was a weird coincidence. Another thing was the birth certificate that was found with Phoenix Mary says that a local nonprofit had helped her track down that birth certificate once again for this surgery that was kind of like a life or death situation. After meeting with Phoenix Mary, and doing her own research, Judy was able to confirm that, without a shadow of a doubt, Phoenix Mary was in fact Mary Louise Day. Mary Day passed away in 2017 due to her illness, and even on her deathbed, she claimed, yeah, I am Mary Louise Day. I feel like my heart's kind of broken for this woman who was reconnected with her family but was still trying to prove who she was. At the same time, I feel the pain of the sisters who had been disconnected from their older sister for all this time. It's just a strange case, and the thing that we still don't have answers on is whose grave did those cadaver dogs hit on, not once, but twice. I do feel like William killed someone and moved their body multiple times, 
Was he so mad that a demon killed that little girl whose shoe was buried in the backyard? I don't know. This is a wild case. And I just took everyone for a journey. I hope you enjoyed it. Okay, I want to know what you think. Because you've been sitting there like digesting it all. Yeah, I mean, this is truly a, a wild case. But I can't look at these pictures and not think that this is Mary Day. The nose. Just, guys, look at these pictures. The nose does it for me. The bone structure does it for me. And the DNA. But what if two things are true at once? Maybe she ran away. I cannot imagine how a 12, 13-year-old survives on the streets alone. We can hypothesize that she went through some additional traumatic events that either repressed those memories of her childhood and she just did what she could to survive. Now she goes and is reunited with these sisters that she loved and cared about at one time. But even receiving that type of love and care and being that close to her family that caused all this pain, even though her sisters weren't the ones that did it, what if that was like too much too soon? She went from being on the streets basically her whole life. Like she said, she had this very transient lifestyle, was suffering with alcoholism. And then you're moving in with this girl that you knew 20 years ago, but no longer know. But this is your sister and all these memories are coming back. Investigators are questioning you heavily. And maybe it was just bringing back some memories that she didn't want to deal with. So it's easier to say, never mind. I'm just kidding. I'm not her. And go back to what she's known this entire time. Because there is a lot of studies done of even why people choose the same abusive relationships over and over you do grow comfortable with what you're comfortable with and what has been introduced to your life. Even violence and trauma and all of those things, you know how to survive it, but you don't know what the unknown has to offer. So you kind of repeat the same pattern over and over. So if she's used to not having very strong emotional ties to people, kind of just blowing around with the wind, that might feel safe to her, even though that sounds really scary to us. So that's a lot to then go back and all of a sudden you're buddy-buddy with your biological sisters who you haven't seen in years. That would be a lot, I feel like. Oh my gosh, it'd be so much. And then you have investigators saying like, we thought you were dead and that that your mom and stepdad murdered you and all this. I mean, that's a lot of information in a short amount of time. And again, it's not what you're used to. She moved in with her sister who's sitting there giving her the side eye of like, are you really my sister? Like questioning everything she does. Yeah. I think it is pretty feasible for her to be like, you know, I got the money. I can go back to what I know, but with a better start. And even she might have looked at it of like, I don't want to cause these people any more pain. Not her crapple of parents and stepdad, but her sisters who at some point in her life she loved, but who she doesn't know as adults. I'm causing more stress than I'm, you know, causing them joy. And I can see that. So maybe I'm just going to leave. It is so sad. (laughs) I know. So I think that's probably what likely happened. All right. So if we go back to where these dogs were hitting, this demon-possessed, self-appointed, demon-possessed stepdad and crapola of a mom who doesn't understand putting anyone above herself and her own needs, is it really crazy to think that there might have been more abuse going on in that home, whether to the mom, to someone else? Like this guy was full of rage, obviously, if you could take it out on an innocent child in any capacity, no matter what the situation is. Could she have gotten pregnant and the baby not come to term or whatever the case because he was violent with her and they needed to cover that up? I think the body of an adult would obviously be a lot harder to keep transporting. 
But if it was, God forbid, this woman was pregnant and he was abusing his wife. I mean, this is really me speculating here. But that would still create the scent of decomposition to the dogs, but would be Mm -hmm. a lot easier to transport back and forth. And it also would make sense of why the kids didn't know why the dogs were hitting there. Because if it was like maybe she was only a couple months along or something like that, and he did something or their lifestyle did something to cause her not to have that baby to term, could they have tried to hide it? And the fact the kids were forbidden to go by that part of the yard under the tree. Well, I let's also keep that. in mind, this lady is not leaving this asshole. Excuse my language. But even after witnessing him hurting her daughter, she stayed with him for, what, two decades when they finally the police got involved in this? So what is else is she willing to do to cover for this? Because if I saw someone hurting my children, I don't have them, but my hypothetical children... I might not be able to get out right away, but I wouldn't be covering for him for 20 plus years when your children are no longer in the home. Yeah. It's a lot to think about. This is a weird one. Are they still alive? I think the parents are. I didn't really look too much into them. Mary passed away in 2017, but I don't know. I kind of want to, I'm curious about their Kansas property. Like what all is over there? let's get some dogs over to that house too. Maybe we'll have a little bit of closure on that piece of the story, but. All in all, this is just a lot. With these dogs, like cadaver dogs, they only do human decomposition. They wouldn't alert for like pets buried in the backyard, right? Correct. And if they did hit, if it was a pet, I think they would have a different set of alerts because their handlers were like, these are human remains at one point that were here. Got it. No doubt about it. Well, this was a twisty turny one that you are leaving us on, Annie. Of course, in true Annie fashion, she has to go out with a bang and make me not be able to sleep. TTYL. (laughs) Not be able to sleep for the next week, but we will, of course, like we said, put the pictures up on Instagram. I'm sure, Annie, that everyone wishes you a very happy and healthy delivery. And by the time this airs, that will have come to fruition. So I'm excited to meet my new little scary squad. She's excited to meet you, too. (laughs) Yes. Every time she hears your voice, she starts kicking. It's funny because they do say the babies can hear things in the womb. Oh, like she's, she's heard my voice from the crime. whole time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry if your baby has nightmares from the start. <laughs> She'll be fine. She's used to it at this point. Yeah, she's she like, is. Okay, here they go again. <laughs> we would love to hear your thoughts over on our Instagram at a case of the Sunday scaries. This one truly has a lot of twists and turns. So I want to hear your theories respectfully. Obviously, some of these people are still alive. So let's make sure that we are respectful about that. I will be back next Sunday. We are having some amazing guests that are coming on since Annie will be gone to help me bounce ideas off of and play detective with me. But as always, until then.